You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey everybody, Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us. Diving into a new teaching series this week on Second Peter. Be spending a couple of weeks unpacking this book. Uh, started out on Sunday morning, and what you're going to hear will be the first section of that regarding how Peter instructs us to multiply peace through the knowledge of God. Uh, pretty excited about this series. I've not taught this as a series before, and so uh, fun for me, hopefully helpful for others. If you would like to jump in with us live and in person, go to the Bridge KC. Dot church the bridge kc.church you can uh, get all the information there where you can meet with us on Sunday mornings uh, would love to have you would absolutely love to have you hope all is well uh, without any more further ado here we go from Sunday morning at the bridge starting in second Peter I actually put a lot of thought and prayer into getting ready to prepare, not just preparing, but getting ready to prepare. And what do we study? What do we teach? And there is some logic to it. This is kind of the way I approach what we look at on a Sunday morning. First of all, I really want to focus on the idea of biblical literacy, the idea of you understanding the Bible and what it means, rather than having to come every Sunday morning going, I hope he hits the bullseye. I hope he, you know, I've got this really narrow set of circumstances, and I hope he preaches about it because I don't know exactly how, what I'm going to do. I'd rather work on the idea of biblical literacy so that we all understand the, the, how the Bible is put together and where things are so that when the time comes that you've got a need, you go, I know where that was. We talked about that somewhere, and I can find that. So I really focus on biblical literacy. The secondary thing that I think about is a, a prophetic sense of where we are going. What is the Lord saying to us in this season? I actually put that behind biblical literacy. Because if you chase what is the Lord saying to us in this season, and you miss it a couple of times, you end up missing vast chunks of scripture. And I want us to be a people who over time understand how the whole Bible fits in. So biblical literacy, then this prophetic sense of where we are going, teaching about things uh, that I believe we're going to be facing in coming days. And then thirdly, and I really place this at the tail end, uh, the events of a given season or what is the Lord doing in the moment. And I realize that there are folks that really like the idea of preaching what is happening uh, in the world events in that exact moment. I think there's a value for it, but if that's all you do, you go from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, and uh, you're always responding to things rather than being proactive. And you, world events happen, and then you come together on a Sunday, and somebody tells you biblically what you should be thinking of that. I would rather try and be proactive and study the entire Bible so on a Tuesday when something weird happens, you have a perspective for it, and you don't have to wait till Sunday to figure out what we should think. So I periodically will actually step back and talk about specific events, but largely I want to try and think forward a little bit that. And I don't think I have taught uh, through Second Peter front to back before, so this is content that will be new uh, kind of to all of us. We've read this, we've heard it quoted, but we haven't necessarily had the conversations uh, before that we're going to have in the next couple of weeks. First answer to the first question, why would we not start with First Peter? And uh, part of the answer is, I am a man, and I throw away the instructions to everything. So I don't start at the beginning of anything. But in reality, 1 Peter are not the instructions for 2 Peter. That's not how it works. Construction of 1 and 2 Peter is very, very different. They are not two chapters of the same book. Uh, they have a couple things in common. The author is the same. 
the recipient of the letters is the same, but they have very different approaches, different intentions. They use a lot of different language and a different writing style. In fact, First and Second Peter are so different that some scholars argue that there's no possible way that Peter could have written both of these books. That, that maybe it's another Peter. Maybe it's somebody else who wrote it specifically. And uh, I don't believe that. I actually believe uh, the traditional view that it is the same person that wrote both books. This is how I account for the differences between First Peter and Second Peter. Number one, they were written three to five years apart. Okay? A lot can happen in three to five years. Think about, if those of you that have adult children, the advice you would have given to them five years ago compared to the advice you would give them today. You would probably speak a little bit differently. Different things happen over the course of three to five years. It's not to say First Peter is wrong. It's just a different day when he gets to Second Peter. So he addresses them a lot differently. Uh, in some respects, Peter evolves as a person between First and Second Peter. You'll notice his real name, his whole name is, is what? Simon Peter, right. In 1 Peter, he says, I am Peter. Peter was the name that Jesus gave him. It meant the rock. The word Simon means a reed, broken, easily bent, very different. When he gets to 2 Peter, he's like, it's three to five years later. I'm a little older. I'm a little more beat up. You know what? I'm Simon Peter. I'm Peter, but I'm Simon Peter. Simon understood that as he got a little older, he didn't have it all together. He wasn't just the rock. He still was the reed and the rock. Your growth will always remind you that you're a little more broken than you thought you were. We have learned over the past couple of years, we're a little more jacked up than we thought we were. If I were to write second Randy, it would be way different than first Randy. Some of you are like, call me when you write fourth Randy. Because that guy might be bearable. So he says, no, I'm Simon Peter. I'm a reed. But I'm a rock. Not only is it three to five years later and he's evolved a little bit, those three to five years were intense. This was written 67 to 68 AD, roughly. I might be off there by a year or so. It's a little bit hard to land it exactly. But what's important to know is that about 64 AD, in Rome, where he is living, a massive, massive chunk of Rome burns to the ground. And the people were angry. They blamed Nero who was the emperor at the time, because Nero was on this urban renewal kick and wanted to rebuild a bunch of buildings, and people were angry about it, and all of a sudden, oh, buildings burned down. So people blamed Nero, and Nero, like a neurotic leader, turned around saying, who can I blame for this? And the easiest target was the Christians. So Nero started on a massive persecution binge on the Christians in Rome who had lived fairly peaceably until they got blamed for burning down the city. And Nero's, Nero's people would grab Christians on the street and just kill them at random. They'd be going to the store and he would grab them and kill them. Others were tortured and then sewn into the carcasses of four-legged animals and made to crawl into the arena in front of thousands of people where they would turn lions loose on these wild beasts that were really Christians in the corpses of these animals. You thought Survivor was the first reality show. No, it was the late 60s AD in Rome. At one point, he coated live Christians with tar, tied them to poles, and lit them on fire to light 
his garden for a garden party. Second Peter is in some ways Peter writing his last will and testament because as he's writing, he hears the screams of people being burned alive. He smells the flesh. He hears about people being put into the arena where they're being killed in the carcasses of these animals. His brothers and sisters that he knows. And in the context of all this, he remembers the words that Jesus spoke to him when Jesus said, when you're old... You will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus was prophesying that Peter would be martyred. Peter goes, I'm late in life. I'm in a city where people are being killed. This is what's going to happen to me. And it's probably going to happen soon. He even mentions in 2 Peter chapter 1, 13 and 14, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body... To stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. (laughs) It's like, I'm in a city where people like me are being killed right and left, and I am writing like a madman, because I know that my days are very, very short. He knows death is intimate, and he's writing like a man who's running out of time. So that explains the intensity of 2 Peter as opposed to 1 Peter. But what about the language difference? Why why is it, like from a scholarly standpoint, why is it different? Both of them are written in the original Greek, and 1 Peter is much smoother. 2 Peter is a little bit herky-jerky in its language. Many people believe that Peter used Silas as a secretary to write 1 Peter, but later wrote 2 Peter by his own hand. He wasn't as familiar with the language. He certainly wasn't as formal. Remember, Peter is a fisherman from Galilee. And now he's in the big leagues academically, and he's trying to write this. He doesn't have the training, and you can kind of tell as it comes out in his language. When it was written through his secretary, it came out much more smoothly. It would be the difference if we were to sit down and we were to write a paper on uh, foreign policy, which Kelsey has written, you know, a hundred of them in the past three years, and she helps me write it, or I write it myself. It's going to be a little, little, little janky if I write it myself. And Second Peter, he probably wrote himself. One last thought of the impact of these two books before we get into the text. In 2021, no Christian bookstore would carry a book written by Peter. Peter would have been canceled by the modern-day church. His behavior following the crucifixion would have disqualified him for ministry. Nobody would have asked them to their conference. Nobody would have let them preach in their church. Nobody would have sold his books. Bible teacher David Pawson points out that according to John 18, there are two instances of a charcoal fire in the New Testament. The first instance is in... John 18, where Peter is warming his hands over a charcoal fire when somebody approaches him and says, aren't you one of the Christians that were following Jesus? And Peter's like, no, 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 wasn't me. The only other mention of a charcoal fire is three chapters later when the disciples find Jesus and Jesus cooks them breakfast, cooks them fish over a charcoal fire and then over breakfast Well, Peter can still smell the charcoal and smells the fish. Jesus looks at him and says, do you love me? Well, yeah, I love you. Three times, do you love me? Yeah, in the the very same setting as he denied him, 
He challenges him, do you love me? And ultimately what he tells him, Apostle phrases it this way. He says, Peter, I can cope with you. I can cope with what you've done. I can cope with your behavior, provided you love me. The interaction is one of the most encouraging passages in the Bible. Because you know what it tells me? Jesus can cope with us if we love him. If we love him, he can deal with our foibles and our mistakes. I tell all of you this before we get to the text to understand this. This is a man who has been forgiven much and he loves much. He is passionate. He was this close to not being let in the club again. And Jesus extended grace to him. And this is the last effort of his life as he writes. Now, I am steering us in this direction of 2 Peter because of the sobriety of our place in history right now. 1 Peter's got great value. I'm sure we'll revisit it later at some point. But this point in life, in history, feels more like 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, we're going to look probably at the first 15 verses. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll get into the rest of the chapter 1. But part 1, we're going to call Take the Stairs. We'll talk about what that means. Part two is a true or false prophetic edition. And then part three will be the cynic's reward. Today, let's start in chapter one, or I'm sorry, yeah, chapter one, verses one and two. Simon Peter, a servant of the apostle Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He makes two points in his greeting I want to talk about real quick. First of all, it's less flowerly than, than 1 Peter chapter 1. It's much shorter, but he makes a couple of strong statements in that. First statement, he levels the playing field between himself and the people that he is writing to. Throughout history, those with a little bit more understanding or a little bit more authority or a little bit more experience have lorded it over those who do not have it. It's the reason that people in power tend to abuse their authority because they think of themselves as greater than those who haven't had all of the same experience. There is something within the human frame that cannot bear the weight of being first or better than somebody else, and they have a tendency to push the limit. And down throughout church history, we have seen this happen. Professionals in ministry have lorded it over those who were not, and we've drawn this thick, dark line between the ministers and this weird phrase we came up with, the lay people. The lay people. As if they were all, Peter would have not understood this idea of the lay people. And he tells them that your faith qualifies you to be on equal footing with him. He writes to these people, he goes, no, you, your faith, is, I'm an apostle, but if you have faith in Jesus, we're on the same page. He starts it out with a bang and said, the, their faith gives them equal standing with him. Peter would not have fit in well in a modern culture of celebrity Christianity. He just... He would have had the grounds to be, but he wouldn't have stepped into it. This is intentional by Peter because he understands Christian leadership because Jesus never did it. Christianity is the only worldview where the greatest among people start at the bottom, and if they're successful, stay at the bottom. Every other world system, there's a way to make something of yourself. And in the Christian world system of leadership, all you make yourself is lower. 
Multiple times in Proverbs, there's this great phrase that we need to get ingrained in our heads. Humility comes before honor. Humility, going low, comes before honor. In this case, Peter's one of the most prominent people in the book. I mean, he's not the Apostle Paul. He's not John the Beloved. But dang on it, he walked on water when nobody else would for a little while. I mean, he, he saw some things the others didn't, and it would have been easy for Peter in his ministry to lean back and go, oh, you foolish, foolish people that I'm writing to. You don't know Jack. And the truth is, they might not have known Jack, but Peter goes, we're not going to make this an issue. You are an equal with me. I'm an apostle, but your faith in Jesus makes us an equal. How could Peter be that humble? Because in the back of his mind, Peter's thinking, I was sitting at this charcoal fire one day, and I had screwed up so badly. And all Jesus asked was, do you love me? And when I said yes... He restored me to everything. Peter says to you this morning, if, you, if you, there's a yes in your heart, you are on equal apostolic standing before the Lord. When we place honor before humility, we get the perspective of someone who does not know what they have been forgiven of. But Peter, who fully understood what he had been forgiven of, he goes, no, 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 no. Humility's got to come before honor. And so I'm going to say to you, we are on equal footing. Second thing he does in that little greeting is he indicates the source for grace and peace in our lives. These are two words that are so ubiquitous in the church, we don't even know what they mean. Grace and peace to you. Uh, peace and carrots to you. You know, we say them so quickly, we don't even know. What are we talking about? Grace and peace. Paul even seems to roll them out quickly. In Romans 1.7, he says, grace to you and peace. From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a part of a greeting. Sometimes words become so common that they lose their meaning. Peter went a step beyond Paul, though. He didn't just wish them grace and peace. He went on to explain how to multiply grace and peace in their lives. In the last year, how many of you have prayed for peace? It's like, it's been a real popular one, okay? Like, I, can you, whoever's taking the orders in heaven with the little headset, you know, peace, 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 grace, peace, peace. Everybody says, God, give us peace. But we generally tend to pray for peace or grace for the day. Lord, if I can get through this day, can you give me grace to do one more day? Can you give me peace to do one more? And he will do that, but what if he wanted to do more? What if he wanted to put in you a grace or peace that extended beyond just the bare minimum that you need? Financiers talk about adding to wealth, or they talk about compound interest, and they talk about the idea of multiplying wealth. Now, you don't want to lose wealth. You'd be happy to add wealth, but you really want to multiply wealth. You want to leverage it to get as much as you possibly can. You don't want peace just for the day, you don't want just grace for a little more. You want to multiply it. And in days of crisis, Christians should be the most peaceful people on the planet because the Lord has allowed them to multiply the availability of peace in their lives. The events of the last year have shown us that we have not exercised what Peter talks about here in multiplying peace because many of us, myself included, have spent days praying, 
the most universal prayer, oh God, oh God, oh God. It's 10 o'clock, can I get to 6? Oh God, oh God, oh God. You know, just give me enough for the day. And Peter says, you know, you can multiply that. You can get more than you think you need just for the moment. And he explains how to multiply it. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus. Most of our anxiety can be tied to an insufficient understanding of God's care in our lives that comes from a lack of knowledge of who he is and how he works. The more you know him, the more peace you have in your life. The more you spend time with him, the more you understand who he is, the more you realize, oh, I bet he's got enough for tomorrow. Our lack of grace and our lack of peace in our life is exacerbated by our lack of the knowledge of God. It multiplies the available peace that we have. If you are hungry for peace, don't focus on what is making you anxious. Focus on the person of Jesus and who he is. Get to know how he has regarded people through history, how he has regarded you and most of you, if you followed the Lord more than a couple of years, have crazy stories of provision of the Lord. You can actually draw on those to say, oh, I, I understand his character. Has there ever been a day when he hasn't been kind to me? Like, can I, now that I think about it, has he ever been anything other than gracious to me? Somebody said this morning, oh yeah, I met you last week at the women's conference. It was a little awkward. Uh, but one of the best part of the women's conference for me, I was in the back, uh, and there were certain stories I didn't listen to. But anyway, the best part of the, mission, the women's conference for me was watching people sing this song. There's never been a day where you've not been good. There's no, and and I, I looked around, and I knew some of their stories, and I thought, oh, I know what they've been through, and they're still singing that song. And the more they spend time with him, that, that, great, that anxiety and peace multiplies in their life. Now, back to 2 Peter for a second. In verse 2 and four, he, 2 to 4, he expounds, it's not only grace and peace that are multiplied by the knowledge of God, it is provision for our physical life and for godliness that comes. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Well, that's pretty much everything. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful nature. He promises everything we need for life and for godliness. He's talking about your physical needs and your eternal well-being. He says, I promise it all to you. Things like healing, things like financial provision for what he has called you to do, as well as growth in your life and becoming more and more godly, more than just understanding who he is, but displaying him to the world. And Peter says that the answer to accessing both of those provisions, your, your physical earthly needs and the provision for what you need to become more godly, the provision for both of those lies in knowing him and understanding who he is and who he's called us to be. Now, every one of us have struggled at some point to lay hold of the promises of God for our lives. 
Every one of us have read things in the Bible and said, it has been promised to me, and there's a gap between the promise and what I've got. Okay, have you done this? Or maybe in prayer, somebody really felt this, you know, the Lord, I think, is, is going to give something to you, and boy, that really resonates, and you're waiting. You're like, I heard the word, they heard the Lord. Did you hear that word? There's a gap between what we have been promised and what we realize, even in provision at times. We read about the Lord providing our needs, and yet there have been times we have had needs. How do we, how do we reconcile the gap between what we're promised, we've promised everything we need, and yet we don't have it all. Some of you have thought about finding Peter in heaven and saying, did you overpromise? Did you just get a little zealous there? Did you overstate your case a little bit? Sometimes the lack of realization of promises in our life has to do with the lack of our knowledge of God. Because if we knew him fully, we would trust his heart. When, and, and this is reflected in where we turn when we feel that lack. Okay, I, I thought we were gonna, this was going to happen. I thought all these things were going to work out this way, and it didn't happen. Where do we turn in, in reconciling that? Immediately, first, we turn to personal experience. Lord, Lord I, you know, I can't figure this out. And actually, sometimes looking to our personal experience can be dangerous. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 3, 7, don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't try and figure everything out. It doesn't always work that well. Then we look to the experience of others. Why? How come? I, I felt we were promised. The Bible says we we're going to. Ah, I don't have it. And we turn to other people, which is sometimes not a whole lot different than taking swimming lessons from drowning people. You ever gone to people for input and walked away more discouraged? It's not to say there is not wisdom to be gleaned from people, but there's way more wise people, or more, way more wise guys than there is wisdom out there. And they are more than happy to advise you. But your story is not their story. And their story is being filtered through their mouths. And so we go to our own experience and we go to other people. And maybe near the end, when we've run out of people that, that are willing to listen to us complain about our lack, maybe then we seek the Lord. <laughs> maybe if we turn that around. Okay, and go to him first. We might actually gain some ground there. He may reveal himself to you in your past or through other people, but he will answer you when you speak to him. Here's the thing about the knowledge of God in relation to God's provision in your life. With the knowledge of God comes perspective that cannot be found in our own experience. Just can't be found. God knows things about your situation right now that you cannot perceive and you will not or cannot know until the fog of war passes. Like some of you are in the battle. And it is like, you know, the Saving Private Ryan where there's smoke rising everywhere and you don't even know where the enemy is. And bang, oh, there he was. You know, it's coming from all directions and you're, you're trying to see your way through it. And the Lord is viewing it from 40,000 feet, going, I see that, I see that. You can't see it right now. So who do you want to talk to? The person who's next to you in the foxhole? Or the person who can see from the top down? See, okay, Randy, the knowledge of God, you've talked about this. How do we acquire this? It's more than just learning about him. Knowledge comes from information and encounter with him. This is part of why we as a body need a prayer room. It's part of why we, we, 
want to find a place we can regularly meet during the week and, and have an encounter with the Lord that goes beyond 20 or 30 minutes of worship and me doing a little teaching. This, this is not our encounter. I mean, the Lord may speak to you through this, but mostly I give you things to think about and then hope that the Lord touches you somewhere else. We want to build a place of encounter because the knowledge of God is revealed in learning and in spending time with him. He doesn't see the battlefield you're in from the foxhole. He sees it from the air. And you can get the view that he gets when your knowledge of him and encounter with him increases. If you're struggling with provision this morning, he wants to answer that. But he's not going to waste the struggle that you're in. If you're struggling and needing healing this morning, he wants to heal you. But he's not going to waste the season in which you are not being healed. And your best understanding of him will speak into your life in a way that will multiply peace and will also see the answers in the provision of God. Any delay of God's promises for you are actually God's goodness in your life playing out. There are things in my heart to give my children that I, I would love to give them, but will be more appropriate in the fullness of time. If they didn't know me, they might not believe that. And they might question me. You know, some of my younger kids don't really understand why they don't have a phone yet. There are 800 reasons why they don't have, like, I, we're, not even, we're not even having the pre-conversation to the, you know, we're not there yet. And you know what? When they're older, they're going to go, oh, that makes sense. So I'm going to give them what, everything they need. He's going to give you everything you need. The gap between having it right now and receiving it, is that's bridged as you begin to know him and understand him and you encounter the knowledge of God in a better way. Now, thinking about just physical needs, you know, it's just kind of a short-term perspective. He goes on to speak into a larger-term perspective here where he talks about that you might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from corruption. Scientists say there's no escaping corruption. I mean, it's not. Everything's breaking down. Even that big blob of plastic in the ocean eventually will break down. Everything in the physical world atrophies. Some of you are feeling that physically now. We laid mulch yesterday. We're feeling, you know, that we're not 20-year-olds laying mulch. We're feeling a little different than we were. We all atrophy, and Peter says, there's a way out. You can actually break this system. And I can sow into you, the Lord is saying, I can sow into you to become partakers of the divine nature and escape corruption. Now, you're still going to get older, but you can escape that idea that your spirit is decaying. No one is disregarding physical needs here or provision, okay? God still provides in miraculous ways. I was thinking last night as I was just kind of flipping through my notes, I don't think I've ever told this story. Maybe I wrote it somewhere at some point. Back in, I guess it would have been 07, uh, we had a big unexpected bill that came. Uh, won't get into the details, but there were, it was a government agency involved with three initials. Okay? It was, you understand. Yeah. Some of you going, you owed the DMV? No, not the DMV. Another government agency. And it was big. It was like one of those, what have we done? Oh, my word. I don't know. How, how are we going to pay this? Well, we could quit eating this year. Maybe live outdoors for a while. I don't know how we're going to pay this. And so we did what any other faith-filled believer was. 
would do on tax day is we filed an extension. Kick, it down, kick that can down the road to October. And, uh, you know, we prayed about it and prayed about, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, what are you going to do? it? And we get to, I think, September. And I'm, I'm in the prayer room, and I, y'all have been with me for a long time. I don't play the I heard the Lord card very often, but I heard the Lord. And the Lord said, you can quit praying about it now. Don't worry about it. And it was so clear to me. And it was so odd to me. But I went home, and I walked into the house, and I told Kelsey, I said, uh, Lord told me about the, uh, the big bill, not to worry about it. Well, the Lord had not told her not to worry about it. There was a bit, a bit of dissonance there. She's like, well, what's the plan? I'm like, well, yeah, he didn't give me the plan, but I know he said not to worry about it. Caused a little tension, to be fair. Four or five days later, we get a card in the mail from a friend, not somebody that we were super close with, but someone we had known for a while in a different city. And they sent a card, and I opened the card, and there was a check with enough zeros to pay the bill off. I mean, lots of zero, like more than you'd think. I'm just telling you right now. I, I was a little shocked, but when it was all done, we had enough to write the check and pay the postage and, and everything. And there was a little note. I mean, no, that was, it was about that close. It was close. But there was a note in there that said, uh, Randy and Kelsey... I walked into my kitchen today, and we received the notification of a bill from uh, a hospital stay that my son had. And I was so grateful because I looked at that bill, and I knew we had insurance. And I knew that that was taken care of. And she said, I stood and I said, Lord, thank you for meeting this need. We have the money to pay for it, but you have blessed us. And she said, the Lord spoke to me and said, if you have the money to pay for it, then write a check for that amount to somebody who probably doesn't have health insurance and probably couldn't pay for it. And so I wrote the check out, and I mailed you the check. It, the, the card was postmarked the day that the Lord had told me, don't worry about it. Now, we've got some of these crazy stories that stick in our mind. And I know if you've, you know, if you've been with the Lord long, everybody, maybe not a story to that magnitude, but maybe, or maybe even bigger than that, these stories that we carry with us of him providing for us in crazy ways, the minute we cross over from this life to the next, those stories are going to feel like peanuts. Like when we really see the provision of eternity for us, do you think we're going to go to the angels and you're going... He gave us money. We needed money. The angels are like, are you seeing this? Look at the throne. Those things he did for you that meant so much, those are, there won't be anything. The value of what he is giving us is so far beyond the value of what he's giving us right now, even though he's being gracious to us right now. Many of you know that we lost uh, my dad and Kelsey's parents when we were fairly young. We were in our late 20s, early 30s. And um, when Kelsey's mom passed away, it's just a beautiful story of grace. She came to the Lord very late in life, body riddled with cancer, wanted to be baptized, uh, almost had to carry her into the baptismal. She was so weak, baptized her. She stood there in the water and used what little bit of strength she had left to dance. Almost had to carry her out to get her out. We get her home and she's in hospice care in our home. 
Hospital bed in the living room. At that point, we had two little boys. And you can imagine what it's like to have grandma in hospice care laying there. And uh, the tension in the, in the house is, is high. And, you know, she didn't know the Lord very long or very well. Very late in the life, she, she became a Christian. And she would just tell you, I don't know much, but I love him. Like, she just, and it was so true. And one day, Kelsey took the boys just to get out of the house for a while. And I was working in the house. And I was going in and checking on her every 15 or 20 minutes. One day, uh, one moment I came down and I checked on her and uh, I, her color was different and I just checked and I realized that she had passed away. And in the last few days when she was able to indicate anything to us, one of the things she indicated is she really liked the radio playing. She really liked Christian music. So we'd had the radio on. This is before the days of Spotify when you didn't get to pick what you got to listen to. You just played, you know, the four songs that Caleb plays. And so we, we walk in, and, and one of those songs is playing, and, and I, the moment I notice that she's passed, I hear Stephen Curtis Chapman singing, I'm free. I've been forgiven. God's love has taken off the chains and given me these wings. And it strikes me for the moment that she's been gone 30 seconds, a minute, five minutes at the max. The things that she could teach me about the Lord right now would be Unbelievable. Because she has graduated to this other plane, and I'm thinking it's good when God pays the tax bill. And she's going, oh, the tax bill was the least of your concerns. You ought to see what I see. This woman who would have admitted she didn't know much about Scripture but loved Jesus, were we to be reunited in that moment, would be the one doing the teaching. Because all of that is provided for us for life and for godliness and the escape of the corruption of the world as she escaped her body, which was riddled with corruption and suddenly put on incorruption. With that, Peter begins to write and he gives insight that shows us what almost every pop song in the world is wrong about. When you think about it, most pop songs are written about love or what they think love is, right? That's what pop music revolves around. And mostly it's around the idea of, I wonder if this is love. I just synopsized like 50 years of pop music right there. No, I mean, there's a couple of exceptions, but that's about it. Go back to the 80s, okay? Tina Turner, what's love? Got to deal with it. 40 years with Ike, she still didn't know what love had to do with it. Van Halen asked, how do I know? Oh, come on. How do I know if it's love? Okay, thank you, Ted. Ted and I are going to sit. Van Halen even touring anymore? We, I'd go with Ted. And we would be representative of most of the audience anymore if you and I went. You could go down through history after the 80s, no music was actually made. But if you could go down through history, and that is most of what pop music talks about, but it talks about from, is this it? Is this not it? I don't know, this is it. The world wanders and wonders about love. And the art that it produced is written to ask those questions, but it's not equipped to receive the answers. So the answers it provides only leads to more questions. And for the most part, when the world says love, it is trying to jump to the top of a set of steps that Peter has written without walking up the steps, and it never makes it. So what it calls love, it always falls short. 
2 Peter 1, 5 through 7 says, For this very reason, for what reason? Because of what he provides and because of what we have to gain in him, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and with virtue, knowledge, and with knowledge, self-control, and self-control, steadfastness, and steadfastness, godliness, and with godliness, brotherly affection, with brotherly affection, love. And an entire culture is trying to leapfrog every one of those steps and go right to love and wonders why it smacks its head. He says, no, 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 no. Peter takes his pen and he writes that people will long for love. They're wired for it, but there is a set of steps to get there. And if you don't follow the steps, you find yourself like Freddie Mercury talking about a crazy little thing called love, but you don't know what it is and you can't find it. You can use the same word to describe very different things. Okay? And the world has talked about love for years. It isn't even talking about the same thing we're talking about. It's talking about something completely different. It's just like, I mean, there's a Moscow in Idaho, but you can't go find the red square there. It's not the same thing. He tells us faith precedes virtue. You, you have to faith, you have a, a belief in the Lord, and out of that comes a virtue or a display of that faith. Virtue displays knowledge. When we express faith and display morality over time, we understand why God has preferences. And we get an understanding of who he is. For example, we would all say monogamy is a virtue. But someone who's been in a monogamous relationship for 60 years has a better understanding of why it is virtuous than a young couple. They go, oh, no, this is, you understand how many headaches monogamy has saved? So someone who has practiced it understands why the virtue, it builds on it. You get a knowledge. Knowledge gives us the impetus for self-control. We see the, the importance of a faith-based virtue, and we say, okay, let's not do stupid things. And we practice self-control. Avoiding immoral behavior brings a steadfastness to our lives. And over time, we are displaying godliness or long-term devotion. It's like this set of steps he has built. And if you start and go up the steps, you actually arrive at a love that you can't get to any other way. When we display godliness, we regard others with an affection of an equal. It's a brotherly love. Very little of what the world calls love involves regarding one another as an equal. It's about who is in power and who is in subjection. And in the world's concept of love, people are not equals. In God's concept of love, they are. That's why Peter at the very beginning can say, you're just like me, and I love you. A book that I have wrestled with for years, it's very thin. For the amount of hours I've invested in it, it should be bigger. But it's very thin. It's by a uh, German philosopher uh, Martin Buber, and it's called I and Thou, and it's, it's very complex in part because it's been translated from German, and it's a little hard, and I feel really dumb because about six months ago, I picked it up, I was going to try and read it again, and I felt like I was making so much more headway, like it made so much more sense to me, and I read, and I read, and I read, and I got to the middle of the book and realized that the first half of the book is a prologue written by an American. I'm like, I'm not even, I haven't even gotten to Martin Buber yet, no wonder it's making sense. But parts of it stick out and are very profound. And the book is about how we regard one another. Martin Buber talks about we refer to one another, maybe not verbally, but in our mind as an it, as a they, or as a thou. 
And we're, when we, we get to refer to people as a thou, we're, we're treating them as a child of God. And he, he makes this phrase that sticks out in reference to what it means to encounter godly love. He said, all real living is in meeting. All real living or encounter is in, in regarding one another as equals. And until we regard one another as equals, we actually don't really know what true love is. Peter finishes this train of thought about the steps of love in verse 8. He said, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you take these steps and you will see fruit in your life like you could not possibly imagine. Learning to love well is not just about us, although it's the most satisfying way to live. It is about the plan of God and the sort of life that he would want to give us. I want to ask if Zion would come back up. There are not a lot of unconditional guarantees. Yeah, if the band would come back for a second. But Peter finishes out the next few verses encouraging them to be diligent in these matters and in these practices. And he tells them this, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to stir you to these things and to these steps of love and to this understanding that God provides everything we need if we increase our knowledge of him. We live in a world that would hijack God's meaning of love. And it would repurpose love as pleasure without sacrifice and payoff without investment. And if it's successful, it sets you on a course of a lifetime of being unfulfilled and not knowing who he really is. Learning to love and to be love is this series of things that we need to lean into. As a church, I want us to learn to love according to the pattern of the Lord. I don't even want to be these people who pretend. We love you-ish. Especially if you do these things, then we really love you. Otherwise, we kind of tolerate you. I want to be people like Jesus that can look at Peter and say, I can get over it. I can cope with who you are. Stand with me. I just want to go back into worship. Just do one song a couple of times. Just begin to speak to the Lord and tell Him, Lord, I want to encounter the knowledge of You in a way that I have not. Father, I want to hear You speak to me in a still, quiet voice. I want You to apply Your Word to my heart. I want to multiply grace and peace in my life through the knowledge of God. Begin to worship for me. And all my peace is found in you. Who you are and what you do. All my peace is found in you. And all my peace is found in you. Found in you, who you are. 
life is found in you Who you are and what you do All my life is found in you Jesus All my life is found in you